0: Thanks for being with us. Well, today is a very special birthday for the Canada Line. It is the 10th anniversary of the day of the official ribbon-cutting on the line, running from downtown Vancouver, linking to the Vancouver airport. It also goes into Richmond, a 19-kilometer route that, well, it uh, there was some debate before it got going. Uh, yesterday, Jordan Armstrong, who's a reporter at Global News, got to uh, get a look at at uh, one of the new cars coming to the line.
1: A dozen new trains are coming, which will enable Canada Line to carry an additional 1,400 people per hour.
2: Yeah, oh, that's that awesome. Yeah.
1: That's sweet. The new train should be in service by early next year. We're on board the first one to arrive from Korea. It's undergoing extensive testing here in Richmond. In case you're wondering, it has that new train smell, and each car features a horn, a very loud one.
0: All right, let's bring in Gordon Price. He is a fellow at the SFU Centre for Dialogue, also a former City of Vancouver councillor, and he joins me on the line now. Good morning.
3: Good morning, Joel.
0: Do you remember back to the day, even the lead-up to the Canada line and some of the back-and-forth and and I guess the questions of whether or not it was even going to happen?
3: Yeah, because I was part of it. (laughs) I was on the transferring part at the time. And I do remember opening day as well.
0: So, I mean, there was some thought that it wouldn't happen, and it took government intervention to make it to go ahead. What was it like at the time when that was all unfolding?
3: Oh, yeah, we were bad boys on the TransLink board from the province's point of view. Voted it down twice. I mean, it was uh, oh, yeah, it was a little tight there.
0: <laughs> so looking at it now, uh, would you say it's a success?
3: Oh, gosh. <laughs> yeah, and I think you have to go back to remember the cynicism uh, that people had about that time, uh, you know, it came in three months ahead of schedule. It was on budget. Interestingly, the budget was probably too low. <laughs> we did have to do some cutbacks. I don't think it's a particularly as first as stations anywhere. Anyway, a particularly exciting system. I, I, I don't think it's something that we point to as uh, the the line. Yes, but in terms of uh, the size of the stations. The artwork, yeah, it's, it's pretty basic. I mean, that's fine, I guess, as far as it goes. The system does the job. It moves a lot of people, and it connects our airport in a way uh, of which we can truly be proud, I think. You go to another city now, particularly in the States, hey, where's the train? What? What? You don't have a train? Uh, so, you know, we're pretty much on top of the our game when it comes to a good transit system.
0: Uh, you talk about the stations, so there's 16 stations uh, along the whole route. So whenever I ride it, I'm always a bit surprised, well, not surprised, but it strikes me as odd that you have the two stations, Olympic Village and City Hall, which a good golfer could golf a golf ball between those two. But then you don't have another stop until 25th, that there's no stop at 16th. Is that a mistake?
3: Yeah. And the city was uh, came to the table to pay the additional amount needed for the Olympic uh, Village station. Because we knew, of course, that there would be a lot of development down there. Um, yeah, and I think it was the right move. And indeed, I would have built a few more stations. I don't know why there weren't. isn't one in Canby Village. Now, there is a, there was a plan for another two stations, one at 57th. It's probably not going to get built. Capstan in Richmond is, I think, going to be built. Uh, but that's the idea. You build the station where you have the growth and you have a... a, a transit line in order to focus the growth.
0: It does seem odd Then you mentioned Canby Village, because people will remember as well that's where a lot of the businesses, when it was determined that it was going to be a cut-and-cover process, the businesses, many of them launched legal action. I think some of it's even still making its way through the court system. And then after all of that, going through all of the chaos of the construction, didn't even get a stop.
3: Yeah, and uh, yeah, no, that was not happy. I think they really felt betrayed. They expected a, a board tunnel. They got a cut and cover. It did have an impact. And yeah, I would put a station there.
0: And so, what can we learn from this or take from this in that the ridership has exceeded, I think, what was expected or projected for it? What do we take or learn from Canada Line when moving with other projects, be them projects in Surrey, the, the Broadway corridor line? What do we learn?
3: Yeah, and full disclosure here, I was pretty skeptical. I, I was surprised that we had, gosh, a, uh, not only hit, we passed quite a bit, uh, the expected growth in the line from almost day one. You know, got that 100,000 people to, quote, make it break even. I think we're up to at least 150,000 people a day. Didn't expect to reach that until, oh, 2021, 20, we did learn a lot from the Olympics. I, I think it is so important to note that, yes, the line was built for the Olympics. But, but more than that, uh, we had to deal with transportation that really was transformative. All three levels of government plus the Olympic authority learning together. We got a lot of data from it. We showed we can do it. People had the experience. Immediately, of course, loved the line. And uh, it's kind of settled the issue as far as whether Vancouver needs and wants transit. Now the issue is not skepticism, it's how fast can get, we get one and how come we don't have one, <laughs> says Surrey. Uh, so I think that was really a turning point as far as our attitude and the, the, the skill, really, that we can manage our, our, transporta- our transportation system as a whole, but with an emphasis more and more on transit.
0: And you mentioned too, the stations themselves are pretty basic, the the line itself, which do we, I guess we've studied it or looked at it because I would think if people who are riding the train, the the two things you really want, you want the trains to get you to where you're going. You want the escalators to work if you need an escalator or an elevator. Uh, Do people want all the frills? Do they want shopping? Do they want artwork? Is that stuff important? Do you think?
3: Uh, I will say, first of all, what they really want is frequency. You know, it's a a slightly under, always has been with with the Expo line, slightly undersized. You know, it feels a bit like toy trains, but we make up with it with one of the most frequent systems in the world. I mean, you don't have to wait more than a couple of minutes, certainly on the Expo line. Uh, and that's, that's quite, still quite astonishing. And it was one of the, I think, maybe the first fully automated system we had, uh, you know, driverless cars before anybody else. And, yes, I do think people like, uh, they like a system that reflects who they are. Art can do that. Good quality materials, well-maintained. Uh, an appropriate sense of spaciousness. I I do think the Canada line stations are undersized. Some of them don't have up escalators. It's a sense of tightness. Now, they can be expanded in some cases. There can be more frequency. We moved a quarter million people a day, after all, during the, the Olympics. So we can do it, but, hey, it's Vancouver. Can we do it really well? Can it be something we're really proud of? Something that will will stand the test of time artistically, yes, artistically, as as well as something that's just functional. And I and I hope we don't make that mistake again. Yeah, it's worth spending some money on. But does anyone remember how much really now the uh, the Canada Line cost? Was is, is that going to be a big issue in the in the future? It was, by the way, about a 1.35 billion. And yeah, a billion still seems like a lot of money. But when you're making an investment, truly an investment to to managed growth in the region. that That's really the dividend that you get. Can we continue to grow? We you know have to. We get about 40, 50 million people, 40, 40 50 million, seems like it sometimes, a uh, thousand people a year. And uh, we have to run as fast as we can to make sure that we provide a service that is efficient and frequent and safe and gets us where we want to go.
0: All right. Well, we will leave it there. Gordon Price, thank you so much for joining us today. Appreciate your time. 50 years it's the 50th anniversary of Woodstock and that has some people questioning what is the real and lasting legacy of that festival lots of different ideas and opinions on that so let's bring in my next guest Eric Alper is a publicist and a music commentator and joins me on the line now Eric thank you so much for being with us
4: Oh, no problem. So, listen, I took the brown acid, even though that they told me not to. So, this might be a really weird interview for me.
0: <laughs> well, it seems... Uh, I'm only kidding. I'm only <laughs> kidding. It seems fitting, though, doesn't it? A little bit. A little bit. But the music's great. Too much mud, though. <laughs> so, what is it, do you think, 50 years, uh, people looking back at Woodstock, and wh- what do you think is the legacy? What do we take away from it? I think it's going
4: to be the great music that were, that was there, and the fact that before the internet and before cell phones, the boomer generation, over 500,000 people collectively all thought that it was a great idea to descend on Max Yager's little farm that was about 600 acres for three days of peace, love and music. And although that that seemed a little bit too idealistic for people, it's really not because it was one of the first um, music festivals to not be consumed by big business, meaning big corporations sponsoring them, um, big promotion companies, big production companies, lights, sound. When you take a look at that lineup of Jimi Hendrix and The Who and Janet Joplin and the band and Crosby, Field Nash Young, there will never be another music festival ever again with that caliber of artists because we're still listening to all of those artists 50 years later.
0: And how did it come about? In that those big names, and they were pretty big names at the time, like you said. It's not as though there was a website or people were texting each other and saying, "Come on down to this festival." How did things? How did it turn into this this gathering of hundreds of thousands?
4: Um, I, I think there were a lot of outside influences. Not only was it, um, you know, a big part of it was um, was the was you know the handful of organizers, um, including Michael Lang, who you know, organize the Woodstock 99 and then also tried to put on Woodstock 50. Um, but I think that there were so many outside influences that affected the amount of people that came. You had the Vietnam War. You had politics. You had the Kennedys being shot and Martin Luther King being shot and killed. So that generation were so fed up with what was going on that they needed to take a stand. And what they did was they took a stand using Woodstock. And uh, the year before, there was a music festival called the Monterey Pop Festival that had Otis Redding and a number of other artists that were taking place in California. So this was the East Coast answer to that. Nobody had any idea that there would be this many people. They were expecting 30,000 people to begin with, but it quickly turned into a mass rush storming the gate. And lo and behold, you have half a million people and more joining into the festival.
0: And and interesting, you mentioned the Monterey Pop Festival, because that's often referenced now in, in many of the articles written about Woodstock, saying that the Monterey Pop Festival in 1967 was actually a bit more adventurous when you looked at the performers. But we don't talk about that. We talk about Woodstock.
4: Yeah, absolutely. It's funny. That same summer, there was also a music festival known as the Black Woodstock, and it had the leading R&B and black artists that were playing there. And they had 300,000 people, but nobody ever talks about that. In fact, there's an article that revisits that in the New York Times this weekend that's brilliant, but there's no soundtrack for that festival that had a million sales in a month and in fact you know it's kind of long gone for on to history but I think Woodstock though just has this um, message of idealism about what could actually be achieved and it just changed so much to the fact that music festivals forevermore were looked upon as a comparison to what Woodstock was trying to achieve.
0: Uh, Do you think that the timing was also key in that it was the end of the 60s?
4: Yeah, definitely. Right after that, the Rolling Stones tried to do their own Woodstock event at Almont Speedway. And, uh, you know, in their little bit of a dangerous mode, they hired the Hells Angels to act as security guards. And in fact, uh, um, a teenager named Meredith Hunter was actually stabbed and killed right in front of the stage um by one of the Hells Angel security guard. And, you know, the media likes to say that that was the true end of the 60s. That was where the violence took over. America started getting a little bit uglier. And then from then on in, music just got a little bit bloated. And it took something like punk music to kind of erase all of that. But, you know, with Woodstock, it was one of those events that forevermore you'll look to to say, you know, actually change is possible. This generation did stop the Vietnam War. It did change politics. And right up until today with March for Our Lives, that's exactly what teenagers all over the world are trying to do with that Woodstock spirit in them.
0: And you, you mentioned, too, what Woodstock was trying to achieve. Was there a goal, do you think, going into Woodstock on what it wanted to achieve? Not
4: at all. I, I, don't, I, I, I think that what they wanted to do was just have a, a festival Um, but it didn't have an agenda. It didn't have a goal or a finish line to it um, because they didn't expect that many people. I mean, you know, it's it's funny to look in, you know, in hindsight and in the rearview mirror about just, you know, the sheer amount of, of acts that were there in terms of popularity. Um, And they were big, but I don't think anybody had a reason to expect that we would still be talking about it 50 years later. In fact, a lot of the musicians that were there had no idea that their artistry or that their group would last more than a couple of years because rock and roll in as a concept was really only 20 years. I mean, rap is 40 years old this year. So it's one of those things where you can't really imagine what the legacy is while you're doing it, except for let's just make sure that people stay safe. Let's make sure that the drugs and alcohol and sex stay within the boundaries of, of the, the human experience and staying on the farm. And uh, let's make sure that nobody dies.
0: And and did we reach those goals about the safety and, and looking out for each other on that? Or has it been over-romanticized, do you think?
4: No, I think it's been a little bit over-romanticized. You know, people love to talk about the amazing things that are happening and that did happen at Woodstock, and because of Woodstock, if you talk to any of the artists, though, they'll tell you a much different story. They'll tell you that the food was awful, that the LSD and acid was um, was used to spike everything from food to drinks to ice cubes. The mud was astounding. The amount of garbage that was left behind was insurmountable. In fact, it took almost three months to clean up his farm and was essentially unusable for a number of years. But people don't really like to talk about that or, or, or really remember that. They just like to remember the the good times. But that's that's, that human memory, though. That's why people break up with their girlfriend or boyfriend to get back together again, then realize that why you broke up in the first place.
0: (laughs) That's a good analogy. (laughs) Um, There have been attempts to to recreate it, to have uh, Woodstock type festivals on the anniversaries that have been failures. Why do you think that's so? Um, because I think the weight of Woodstock 1969 is just way too heavy. In 1999, when
4: they tried to, to do it again, in fact, that was the, the second festival after that. There was a little-known festival at Woodstock that happened with the organizers a number of years earlier that kind of faded from memory. But in 1999, you saw a lot of grunge music, you saw a lot of hard rock, you saw a lot of bands that were using a lot of, a lot of harder imagery like Marilyn Manson or, or uh, Nine Inch Nails. Um, Red Hot Chili Peppers, Pearl Jam, the, that kind of music just didn't fit the i, you know, the vibe of what the original Woodstock is. And I love that music, but when you have that and you have, you know, a lot of teenagers and it starts to get dark, anything happens, and that's where you ended up with sexual assault. That's where you ended up with deaths. That's where you ended up with a lot of violence and police brutality because that music that was being played during Woodstock '99 actually kind of goaded these you know the teenager to do those things as opposed to and I'm not saying that that was wrong or that they were impressionable as opposed to say Crosby, Steele, Nash and Young singing about love the one you're with.
0: Right so the music really does play I mean the music is the whole point of being there. Interestingly you said that I'm going by memory here but was it the one in 1989 uh, where Limp Biscuit was blamed I guess yeah. for the big fight that broke out?
4: Yeah, that was in 1999. Yeah. Yeah. And, and you know, we still see that spirit in Woodstock at the Vancouver Folk Festival or the Edmonton Folk Festival or the various blues festivals where you have to look out for one another, especially in today's times where we've seen mass shootings, we've seen mass violence happen and how easy it is to be vulnerable when a large group of people get together, no matter if it's a music festival or even sporting um, sport, you know, in, in in sports games where you see heavy, heavy security now at all of these events. In fact, it's all it's actually what you don't see keeps you safe with the undercover police officers that are doing an amazing job. But that kind of of, of experience that we're seeing now. Um, all really bleeds back to to Woodstock 69 because of the music that was on stage. But we still see that spirit in local community um, music festivals from across Canada.
0: Oh, for sure. Was there security at Woodstock?
4: Mm, Not really. I mean... If there was, we probably would have seen a lot more violence than we actually did. In fact, there were more births at Woodstock 4 than deaths, which there were two. Um, But, you know, when you have 30,000 people expected and over half a million people show up, storming the gates and just making it a um, free-for-all. Don't forget, tickets were actually on sale for a number of months. Um, They placed ads in Rolling Stone magazine, and one day's ticket was $8 and a three-day Weekend was like $17. So they actually did want to make money from it. Um, But once, you know, just the sheer amount of people um, kind of descended on on the farm, it, it was all over. You know, the organizers just said, just open it up and just make sure that nobody that nobody gets hurt.
0: Yeah. And and really, it it is quite amazing to think of it 50 years ago, because that could never happen today. Uh, The music, though, as you mentioned, the music that was played at Woodstock is still listened to today. It's still held up as some of the the best music. How long do you think that will, uh, how long will that last?
4: It's interesting. If you take a look at Google searches in the last number of years, you'll see that even unstoppable, unbreakable artists like the Beatles are actually dropping in Google searches. Now, their sales are still pretty high. They're still one of the most important bands that ever existed, possibly the greatest. But the difference of somebody that is a teenager in 2019 listening to music from the 1960s is really the, the equivalent of somebody back in 1969 listening to music back in 1919 or 1929. They just weren't. So eventually things will pass. But if you take a look at uh, you know, the artists that were there, whether it was Janet Joplin or Blood, Sweat and Tears or Ravi Shankar and Richie Havens and 10 Years After and The Who and Hendrix, I, It, it it's music that will last for at least another generation. We're still going to be talking about that um, those artists but I think eventually though like everything else time has a funny way of erasing people from the history books and you know there's the thought that only a handful of artists or a handful of stars are really thought about every hundred years. We'll always think of Elvis we'll always think of the Beatles. After that though how many people from the 1700s do you really think about other than maybe you know Beethoven and
0: Yeah, Very, very true. Well, Eric, thank you for joining us uh, on this anniversary, on the 50th anniversary uh, of the festival uh, and talking about it uh, and sharing your expertise. Thank you again so much. No problem. Thanks so much for having me. We'll talk soon. So we talk a lot on this program, on many programs on this station, about the Trans Mountain Pipeline expansion, uh, the debate over whether or not it should go ahead. Uh, We talk about the environment and issues when we have development and the environment. And my next guest is joining me to talk about energy development and endangered species and how to, if there is, find any common ground between the two. Sean Fluker is an associate professor of law at the University of Calgary and joins me now sean fluker thank you so much for being with us
2: uh, you're welcome joe uh,
0: you've written about this uh, taking a look at specifically bc and alberta when it comes to projects uh, that are about energy development and uh, looking at endangered species or species at risk what are your main concerns
2: uh well you know i've written recently because there seems to be a you know there's a bit of a line in the sand being drawn between the the provinces and the the federal government. The provinces are, you know, pushing ahead for uh, more, um, you know, more resource development. And uh, the the federal government appears to be sort of positioning itself as sort of the, you know, the, the, the environmental um protector or the you know the, the the government that stands up for the environment and and so it, it was it's really that more recent i think sort of policy debate that um attracted my attention recently and of course as you just mentioned we have the uh, the high profile um uh, announcements or approvals uh, here over the summer that uh, have sort of stoked that conversation
0: uh, so how do you find a way to continue with resource development and to make sure that uh, BC and Alberta and the country as a whole are benefiting from that and also protecting the environment?
2: Well, I mean, ultimately, the approach we have been following is, is um, you know, we, 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 Im- we impose uh, uh, an increasingly long list of Project conditions on project proponents, and you know the Trans Mountain approval is uh, probably the example that's uh, closest to home for uh, for your listeners. But you know there's a, a list of a dozen or more conditions that um, that the operator has to comply with that are you know designed today to address what we what we know or think we know will be impacts on endangered species as a result of that. Um, as a result of that activity but we've been doing that for decades and you know it's not working um and so i you know i think my largest concern is um you know we we're, we're not really changing our approach to these sorts of things um so yeah basically at the end of the day um there's going to be instances where we have to accept i think that it's it's more of a choice rather than a balance i mean you know we're, we're if we're going to push ahead with a Uh, with a with a major energy project and science tells us that it's going to have a really negative impact on a on a a regional uh, species at risk Um, you know we may have to just you know politicians may have to you know be more open and accept the fact that you know it's it's likely gonna it's likely gonna wipe out that population.
0: Uh, But so is there a way then, is that where the opportunity comes up, uh, that if the science says, if you do this, it's going to lead to a possible extinction of this species, then is that not the time that you mitigate the risks or figure out a way that maybe you can do the project, but also save the species?
2: Well, that's what I was saying a minute ago. I mean, that's what we're trying to do. And the conditions that that, that are imposed on the operators are are designed to, to try to mitigate those risks. But um the, the sad truth of the matter is is that you know a lot of that is pure speculation and um you know really we have been doing that for a long time now and you know species decline continues to accelerate because for the most part um you know those conditions don't don't work um or you know mitigation is kind of um a nice uh, goal to strive for in theory but in practice um doesn't seem to work as well as we like. Now, you know, that's, um, yeah, basically. So that that's kind of the larger concern, I think. Uh,
0: we talk a lot also about the southern resident killer whales, obviously, because uh, they're such beautiful creatures and people love them. They're a huge draw. Uh, but th- that population actually has fluctuated. Where it sits now, I think around 75, 76, I mean, years ago, it was it was down much lower, it came back. Uh, do we overestimate perhaps how much of an impact we have on that population?
2: Uh well, it, you know, that could be and that's part of the complication here is that you've got, you know, you know, not just, you know, human caused impacts, but there could be lots of other impacts that address um, these populations. So for sure that 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 complicates matters. Um but you know when you're talking about that low number of individuals, you are still, you know, really at a at a at a vulnerable point for those populations and um you know, I think that's Probably the larger concern is that it's the population itself is at such low numbers that it can't really it doesn't have the resilience to withstand um, the potential uh, for a major shock, which is, I think, what, you know, um, those who are concerned about the pipeline are concerned that the, the marine increased marine vessel traffic will, will actually have that kind of an impact on that population.
0: Right. And but what are we basing that on?
2: well we we're, were we're basing it on you know studies that have been conducted you know over the course of time um and you know the environmental assessment process that the national energy board engaged in uh that led to the approval you know it it heard all that evidence and so you know that's that's kind of that, that's what the, those predictions are based on is is that expert evidence that was put before the the board and really, the debate at the policy level, you know, rests on, you know, how much stock do we put in that evidence? Um, do we use, do we say that, it, look, we, we really want to have that southern resident population persist? There's real concerns about the impact that uh, this project is going to have on that population. Do we, uh, you know, impose conditions that we hope will work? Do we put off the project? But, you know, that's the tough that's a tough decision.
0: Uh, you also write uh, about species at risk uh, legislation. Uh, do you think does 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 that legislation uh, where it exists does it need to to be bolstered? Does it need to be stronger?
2: Well, the main the, the, yeah, and so yeah, British Columbia was uh, has been talking about you know dedicated endangered species legislation, and you know my understanding is that's not on the drafting table at the moment, but you know it's probably still being discussed. Um, in the in the, the the backroom hallways in Victoria or what have you. Alberta, it's really not on the discussion at all. And as some people will know, Ontario has um, recently announced some rollbacks to its Endangered Species Act, which are somewhat similar to what the U.S. government recently announced uh, south of the border. But the real um, missing piece really across all of Canadian legislation anyways, and this includes the Federal Act, is... There's there's nothing that prevents um, a, a, the government or federal or provincial or federal officials from approving projects that will um, uh, that are you know that science tells us are going to have a negative impact on a on an endangered species population. All of the acts basically put the onus on the project proponent to uh, follow conditions, if you like, um, and you know really I think. Uh, it would be more effective if the, if the governments themselves had the obligation um, to, you know, basically not approve projects that were, you know, are known to have these impacts or approve them, um, but have responsibilities attached to those instead of, you know, downloading all that onto the project proponent.
0: All right. Well, we'll leave it there. But it's an uh, interesting uh, research, an interesting uh, piece that you've written about this. Thank you so much for joining us today and talking about this. Well, you might have heard about this. It took place outside the Point Grey Mansion of Lululemon founder Chip Wilson. A bunch of young artists, uh, they took to the streets outside of the multi-million dollar compound. Upset about what they say is happening to many of the artists' live workspaces that they live in. Mike Klassen, who is a columnist with the Vancouver Courier, has written about this. And he joins us on the line to talk a bit more about it. Mike Klassen, thank you so much for being with us again. Good morning, Jill. Good morning. I love the title. Low Tide, more like a low blow for some of Vancouver's creatives. Uh, So so walk us through, for people that aren't all that familiar with this story, kind of walk us through what happened and what led to what turned into a meeting with Chip Wilson outside of his house.
1: So I suppose this is uh, what made this story rather interesting, is that uh, one of Vancouver's most successful business persons, uh, Chip Wilson, who started the Lululemon uh, company, uh, and lives in, uh, which is I, I think deemed to be the most expensive home in uh, Greater Vancouver right now. It's about 73 million dollars uh, worth of property in Point Grey Road. Uh, he came out because there was a, uh, a gathering of about uh, about 60 or so people representing the artist community, and they were holding a rave on on Point Grey Avenue uh, outside of his house. And the point of the rave was to protest that uh, many of them have been evicted out of properties uh, that his company, which is called Low Tide Properties, which is the uh, source for the title of the of the piece. And um, as a result, he decided to come out and be his own sort of media spokesperson with cameras rolling and Facebook live streams going uh, and uh, started to try and, you know, kind of reason with the crowd and, and, and explain his case and, he made some very interesting comments that I think were, were quite memorable. So, so very Chip Wilson, too.
0: <laughs> exactly, because on the one hand, you kind of want to give the guy credit. He, he didn't have to come out and talk to this crowd on the street. He chose to do that. I've, I've talked to people uh, that live in that neighborhood sometimes, too, and they say sometimes he's out there just giving out hot chocolate to people. He likes to you know, talk to people uh, uh, on the street. He didn't have to, but the message that he, he brought with him didn't really go over all that well.
1: Yeah, no, he's uh, been one to to say things perhaps that he might regret afterwards. And in this case, he said, uh, in effect, that uh, the reason you can't pay your rent is that, you know, people don't want to pay for it. Or, you know, you're not making products, as he called them, uh, that people want to pay for in order to pay your rent. And uh, not really getting into the details of the fact that he's, you know, his company has raised their rents.
0: And so what do you think? Because certainly Chip Wilson and his company, they're not the only ones to to do this. I mean, there are developers that buy up. I mean, that's what they do. They buy up properties that are still on the lower end of things. They develop, they make money off of it. So why do you think Chip Wilson is such a focus?
1: Well, um, the reason why it's interesting is that, uh, first of all, um, the protest that was organized to focused on on Wilson's home, um, because, and I guess you have to give the, the, the artists some credit, they they did it in a playful way. It wasn't, you know, it wasn't overly hostile. It was a rave, right? It was people dancing and kind of holding placards and things like that. So it wasn't, you know, it wasn't uh, really threatening in that regard. But um, Wilson's uh, become you know more of a focus because he has, with his low-tide company, announced a few years ago that they were going to expand their portfolio of pro- properties in, in Metro Vancouver uh, with the goal of um, uh, acquiring about $1.5 billion worth of real estate. And so uh, they're going in and picking off properties like these that are probably a bit more marginal. I call them neighborhoods in transition. Um, And what they are doing is uh, going in there and determining what the market rent is and deciding that the people who are currently in there are not paying enough rent. And as a result, they have to move on.
0: Uh, So in a sense, it sounds a lot like the evictions that we've talked about in other neighborhoods and other cities as well
1: except that it's happening in in properties that people are residents in and of course that they're working in and and so it has a a, you know a pressure on a very important community in my view and a lot of people's view is the creative community and um if if anything Vancouver is trying to earn a reputation for being a city of creatives from its film and its digital communities um and the artists play an extraordinarily important part of that and so they need space to be able to work and uh you know, this has been frustrating for politicians in the past. I remember former Councillor Heather Deal talked about this frequently when uh, when Vision Vancouver was in, in office. And even they were not able to try and come up with the solution. There was a, an effort done by the council um, that happened before Vision with uh, Mayor Sam Sullivan. And there was some success, but it was a very limited a uh, case of just one or two properties that were, were kind of being able to, some, some, some rules got bent, in other words, to, to allow the artist to move in.
0: Right. So how is he, though, able to get away if they're suggesting that they live in these spaces and they're now facing huge rent hikes? How is he able to do that when aren't there rent controls and things in place for existing tenants?
1: Uh, well, so they're not uh, they're not in place for commercial properties. They're really largely those rules are are in effect for residential properties. So um, anybody could raise the, the rent on a on a commercial property as they see fit. The problem that you know communities face, and and we I know that most people hate the sign of a boarded up or even sort of papered over window of a business that can't be rented out because of the high rent that it's charging and, and people can't come in. And I guess that's just the way the market works. In some of these neighborhoods in transition, you, you're kind of hoping that um, that in the short term at least, they would make some accommodation for creatives um, specifically, you know the ones that are responsible. And there's some that have done a fantastic job. Of making these neighborhoods extraordinarily dynamic, as a result, you start to see you know restaurants moving in kind of like funky coffee bars and it really does improve the neighborhoods over time uh and that's unfortunately uh, one of the things the artists have to face is they they sow the seeds for for the the kind of loss of these properties because they actually make the areas quite desirable. But I think what the artists are really looking for are kind of something more short term. I think most of them expect that they're not going to occupy these buildings forever. But if they are able to hold on to them for a few years and have some certainty, then they can host the events and do the work that they want to do. Um, And currently that's not possible.
0: Right. The way you put it, it's kind of like they're a victim of their own success and that you help make a neighborhood vibrant and attractive. And that's when uh, people come in and uh, you, uh, you get pushed out.
1: Of course, and this has been going on in all cities, but in Vancouver especially. I remember Yale Town, which is obviously high end, high priced, lots of lots of housing in there now. Used to be a, a bunch of warehouses, and it was pretty scruffy. And same for a lot of other neighborhoods that have just gotten more interesting and better over time. And it's really the artist communities that can kind of take credit for some of that, because that's where a lot of those studios were.
0: All right. What do you see happening here in that uh, Chip Wilson came out, talked to them, didn't uh, tell them what they wanted to hear? It sounds like it's going to be going ahead anyway.
1: Well, in the case of low tide properties, they have a business decision to make. And clearly, they have already made one that says that they're going to push for maximum profitability on these on these properties. The question is whether somebody's going to want to pay those rents and move into those neighbourhoods. If they do sit unoccupied, then that tends to be a magnet for property crime and it, it definitely kind of brings the neighborhoods down. So we'll have to watch that one very closely. Uh, I do think that the impetus, though, is that the city itself, I, I'm told by business people who want to be able to lease out these spaces on a, on a longer term, maybe five years, uh, and get them at a and what I've heard the kind of deals that are being done is that the, the property owners will say, cover the cost of my property taxes. That way I'm, you know, I'm not losing money on this property. And then you pay me a very nominal rent and then you can sort of sublet these out to artists and take care of that. So it's, it's a real win-win for the property owner and the community and, and the artists themselves. But those kinds of arrangements are harder to come by. It takes some business people to a want to do them and B um, it's risky because if the city catches on to these things, they come in with a hammer and want all of the uh, building improvements to bring them up to safety codes. Not safety codes, but up to up to building current building standards, which can be extremely expensive in the hundreds of thousands of dollars. Right. Um, whereas if you have them for life safety, then people can occupy them. And that's the, that's the ideal situation.
0: All right. Mike Klassen, thank you so much. We're right out of time. Uh, his column is in the Vancouver Courier.